Hi folks, and thanks for listening to this Tortoise Shack podcast. A little bit of housekeeping before we kick off. We have launched a new podcast a couple of weeks ago called The Palcast, One World, One Struggle, hosted by the brilliant Palestinian writer, Dr. Yusuf Al-Jamal, and his longtime friend and collaborator, Helen Coben. Uh, and I'd recommend you check it out. The most recent episode was a tribute to Dr. Rifat Alarir, who you would have heard uh, on the Echo Chamber podcast several times, and who was killed deliberately by the Israeli military late last week. Now we need to ask you to dig deep. Put your hands in your pockets and throw us the price of a pint this Christmas and help us keep going into 2024. The Tortoise Shack relies entirely on you. We have no ads, no sponsors. And while there are thousands of people listening, understandably less people have been contributing given the cost of living crisis and how people are struggling with bills at the moment. But if you're one of the fortunate ones and you like what we do, please give something back. It's patreon.com forward slash tortoise shack. The link is at the top of the podcast you're about to listen to. It's a couple of quid from you, but it makes all the difference to us. Thanks for listening. Thanks for the support. Please join us. I'm shutting up now. Enjoy the podcast. Welcome to Reboot Republic, the podcast that goes behind the headlines and looks at the big issues in this republic of inequality. We are the podcast of solutions and the podcast of hope, and I'm your host, Rory Hearn. Delighted to be joined at the podcast today by Tanya Ward, who's the CEO of the Children's Rights Alliance, and also by Dr. Lorcan Sir, a senior lecturer in housing in TUD. Um, Tanya and Lorcan, delighted to have you today for... What is uh, very, very difficult times, um, very dark times indeed in Ireland. And we are seeing, we've seen this week um, the government saying that there is no emergency, no accommodation for uh, additional asylum seekers offering tents and um, talk of additional money. And obviously we are in the situation, the post-riots, um and a, just last evening, Wednesday evening, we saw the motion put forward by the uh, independent deputies and the, um, the rural independents in the Dáil, which I would recommend people actually to have a read-through of the transcript of that debate. It is very indicative of uh, some of the thinking and arguments that have been put around, and I was quite struck by it. Um, and seeing across social media this um, increase, a huge increase in um, expressions of the Ireland is full, um, The that we've just taken in too much immigrants, it's time to have the... Uh, and, and like to look at some of the wording of the motion is actually quite stark, saying, you know, we just have to stop the asylum seekers coming in. We've seen the direct um, claiming that asylum seekers are, and uh, this increase in immigration is causing the housing crisis and, and wider lack of provision of services Ireland been unable to cope. Um, and the, the of course, the, the other part of this is we are living a housing crisis and, um, you know, unprecedented levels of homelessness. And what's I think what we really need to talk about is and challenge is this idea that the housing crisis, this lack of services is down to um, asylum seekers, increased migration, and also that somehow stopping asylum seekers would lead to any improvement in public services or provision or address homelessness. Um, because the really the root cause is the core, what we know, you know, it's 30 years of neoliberal policies of austerity that has never prioritized public service provision. 
Um, but we do have, of course, other issues alongside this, which is deep inequality, um, social exclusion, which the far right are tapping into, um, and a deeper underbelly of racism in Ireland as well. We've had long-standing racism against travellers. Um, when you go back to 2004, we had the referendum on citizenship um, promoted by Michael McDowell and others, and Michael is back out banging the tune again about, you know, we need to have the debate about asylum seekers. And what I was really struck in the um, the motion and in a lot of this discussion is, of course, not once are vulture funds, landlords, developers you know, pointed the finger at in terms of housing and the vacant and derelict buildings, the ones that are there. Um, But there's no doubt we can't get away from the fact that there is this rise in anti-immigrant sentiment um, and racism, and we need to figure out how we can tackle it and how we can respond to it. Tanya, I'll go to you first. Um, Just in terms of that, what what is your thoughts about where we're at now? Yeah, I mean... uh... Because there's another story. I mean, you could you can focus on all the the negative in terms of what's happening at the moment, but there is another story, and there's a very positive story about the recent migration of of refugees to Ireland. You know, if I if you look at the the education side of things, um, we've had a hundred thousand Ukrainians who've come to Ireland. Only about eighty percent of them have stayed. You know, because what's happened with the Ukrainian refugee population is many have tried to reunify with other family members in Europe. There's, yeah, and this is this often happens when you, you this is the biggest migration of refugees since the the Second World War. And and you know, I think Ireland we should be really proud of what we've done and by taking in refugees. I mean, in terms of what Ukraine is doing for Europe, you know, it's, it, the Ukrainian government and the people of Ukraine are making Europe a safer place because they've taken on the Russians and the Russians had big plans to, to roll into in Eastern Europe. So I think we, we can't lose sight of that. Um, but, you know, Ireland actually has had the best response from an educational point of view across Europe. Children are registered in schools. Actually, the teachers, the principals, Department of Education, it's probably one of the best things they've ever done. And what I'm hearing is in the surveys with the, the Ukrainian refugee children, I mean, there was a, there was a big survey done. And actually we're, we're one of the only countries to actually survey them, right? That's one in Europe, which is very interesting. But 85% of Ukrainian children said they felt safe in Ireland. And I, I, I think a lot of people working in the system were delighted to see that because they wanted to play a role. Uh, and this is their way to play a role in relation to what Russia has done uh, to, to Ukraine. Um, and, you know, the, the, the other side of that story is also that the, the Ukrainians arriving in Ireland hasn't actually impacted housing for people either because the government have been very careful not to actually go after any kind of residential accommodation. So they're, they're, they're being put in commercial accommodation, uh, settings and hotels and et cetera. And many of those, sometimes some of those aren't being used at all. Uh, there is a problem, I think, in some parts of the country that they're using hotels, which really they, they you know, they've done the heavy lifting and, and, and really they should be looking at more permanent um, accommodation options. And and the same is true for uh, the other group of refugees we have coming to Ireland, people seeking international protection. Um, actually, we've had 
Ireland really had very low figures, to be honest, for the last 10 years. And now we're probably looking at about 15,000 people seeking protection each year. And what you're seeing is, is Ireland is kind of just levelling up with other parts of Europe. You know, it, we're, we're seeing the kind of figures we probably should have seen um, for most uh, of the last 10, 15 years, to be honest. I think that's what's happening. And again, the government is very careful not to use public housing or residential accommodation to support people seeking international protection in Ireland or using commercial settings. And of course, that's that's to their detriment in many cases because it, it, what I'm particularly concerned that there's about 5,000 children, just under 4,000 children who've come, um, their parents are seeking international protection and they're in these emergency settings. Um, and I think it goes back to what you said earlier this problem, it, there's actually plenty of space in Ireland. In fact, there's plenty of potential accommodation in Ireland because every time I go on the radio, what happens is I get contacted by one of our 150 members. I have accommodation. I've tried to hand it over. Um, the government haven't converted it or um, the commercial operators, they will contact us. They'll contact other providers and say, we've accommodation. We've made the offer to government and they haven't converted it into, into an offering for people seeking it protection. And you particularly hear it when people, like uh, this week, we know there are 62 um, men who are seeking protection who haven't been offered accommodation, they've been offered a tent. And what happens is, of course, all the calls come in. And the exact same thing happened this time last year when people were put in tents. I got calls from NGOs saying, we have accommodation, we've handed it over and it hasn't been used. And I think probably is we just haven't put enough effort and resources, the government haven't funded this sufficiently, put enough people in place. And it goes down to the same, it's the same issues with the housing crisis, to be yeah, honest. Yeah. They haven't actually resourced this sufficiently to convert all these leads into real accessible housing options. And it's, it's so disappointing because, uh, you know, one of the things we know is happening, we've massive labour shortages in all the public services. So, you know, I was at a meeting today um, in Tusla, big issues with trying to recruit social workers, big issues. Another meeting last week recruiting teachers, um, big issues recruiting nurses, doctors, etc. And we're not going to fill those posts through uh getting people through the university is going to take too long to do it. What we need is, is actually we need migrant workers to fill the roles. We need them to be on the building sites and build the accommodation of the housing that we need. We need them working for Tusla in the social work services. We need them working in our shops, We need etc. And I think that's the problem is the government haven't really been able to build sufficient housing. So to keep the economy growing, give people a different life, I think that's the other side of it. People just want a decent life, they want to raise their children, get a place in school. I think that that's what this is really about. This is not about Ireland is full. It's that the government haven't created enough housing <laughs> for the people that need it. And the economy is struggling now because we can't we can't actually really benefit from migrant workers and other refugees who want to come and contribute to this country. Yeah, I think that very, very important points. And I think you're right actually, you know, in terms of putting the positive spin on it, I suppose I'm you know, hearing so much and engaging with it so much, it is difficult to try and see the positive side of it at the moment. Um, but there is huge positive side in even in terms of the responses within communities that we've seen as well. Yeah. You know, the, earlier this year, we had over 50,000 marched with Ireland for all. You know, in communities, we know up and down the country, people are welcoming, um, you know, refugees, they're working. 
um, supporting, you know, offering accommodation, working on integration. There's a huge amount. And the majority of people in Ireland feel like that and are doing yeah. that. Yeah. Um, and that's really important to emphasise as well. And, and um, I think and, that is... And, the and, and Rory, what you're hearing from the the rural schools, they've saved the rural schools. So yeah. a lot of rural schools were, were near closure. And um, by children arriving, suddenly these schools actually have the possibility to stay open. And that has really helped communities that were about to lose their schools are holding on to them. But the other thing that's very interesting as well is, you know, in, in, in communities that are very marginalised, um, and this contributes to the marginalisation when all the children are struggling, um, that, that, you know, it impacts in all of them actually. But when you have other children that are very motivated, and this comes through really with migrant children or children that are very able, what you find is it, it actually motivates the other children in the school. So you'll hear, um, from schools that will be traditionally disadvantaged. With the migrant children arrive, actually everyone seems to be doing a bit better. And that's the kind of that's kind of an amazing kind of uh, impact of migration is that it does really improve the the lives of communities as well. And the, the school is really and the youth services are really central in that. And it's interesting just before I go to Lorcan, what's really interesting, I think, is that education is our only universal public service we have in this country. And is it inter- isn't it interesting that that's the one that actually has responded well and responded in terms of being able to what it has done. And I think it's an argument for, you know, universal public services across the board being funded properly. It's also the one, the only one that's in our constitution as well, the only one that's constitutionally protected as a right in terms of primary education. Lorcan, your own response, thoughts? Yeah, I think, well, I think Tanya has kind of <clears throat> said it all, which is which is helpful. And I think I, I really, the, the, the point that Tanya made loads of really good points, Point I really like. Thanks, Lord. And, and we we forget about that. Um, is 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 that is what Ukraine is doing at a, at a geopolitical level for the rest of Europe? And this nonsense about you know Ireland is full. We don't need these people. You forget that if it wasn't for Ukraine standing up to Putin, uh, you know, with his imperialistic ambitions, that you know the world could be a very different place very quickly. Uh, and that war could come very much uh, closer westwards, closer. And like, it's not talking about the Ireland is full. It's, you know, it, we'd be battening down the hatches for far worse things. Um, so I think it's really important to recognize whether you, whatever you think of war and, 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 and all that kind of stuff like that. They're kind of a big buffer between, <clears throat> between what has turned out to be a very imperialistic, um, you know, Quasi dictator there in Russia, uh, uh, and the rest of us who'd like to think of ourselves as as kind of liberal economies and all that stuff. So that's really important. The other bit about um, we put a lot of effort and resources into this, and we have absolutely, and we've done really well. You know, in fairness, and, and there are lots of problems out and all that kind of stuff, but we have done really well. The, at, at, at a political level, the real issue is that this has all been landed on radical government's plate. I'm not a member. I'm not a defender of radical government. I'm not a member of any political party. I have no political ambitions or anything like that. But he has been shafted badly by the other people around the cabinet table. And we know that, you know, earlier on this year, he put out a call to all his cabinet colleagues, you know, will you identify properties for us, et cetera, et cetera. And only one of them came back to them. So, you know, uh, in particular, Simon Coveney and the Department of Defence, um, when he was there, are, you know, disgraceful, like a, a, a department that has loads of land and buildings, et cetera, that could be handed over and, you know, no, not a peep out of them. Um, but, you know, the response from government and, and particularly the washing of hands by the Department of Housing uh, and Dara O'Brien in there is it is an absolute disgrace. So ultimately, this is a housing problem. Ultimately, it's it's been used by the far right. Housing has been used, poor housing policy has been used by the far right as a lever to stoke tensions. 
the thing about it is I'm, I was busy doing some stuff earlier on today, looking at housing from 1923 to 2023. And we've always had a housing crisis. There's nothing new about it. And if you go back into debates in the ter- 30s and the 50s and 60s and early 2000s, it's the same words, just different dates. You know, procurement, pricing is a problem. Where are we going to fit all these foreign workers? In the 50s, we were talking about where are we are going to put all these foreigners? And they were, they were Hungarians. They weren't Ukrainians. Same crack, uh, but just different decades. So this has been going on for, it's a perpetual state of, of kind of crisis. But I, I do feel Feel for the government. I'm just putting my cards on the table. I'm a board member of the Irish Refugee Council, but I'm also a member of the expert advisor group to the minister, myself and Catherine Day and a guy called David Dunn, who both of whom know Putin actually uh, from their former jobs. And we can see it. So we see the civil servants and we see Rodrigo Gorman. Uh, and, and in fairness, they're doing a lot of work, but they don't know what they're doing. Like they aren't the OPW. They're not experts in buildings or modular housing or rapid build or procurement or turnkey or any of the stuff that I would know about. Um, they have a different brief, a different experience, and yet it's been landed on their plate. And that's like, asking you, Rory, to go out and design a motorway. You know, that's not your expertise, Uh, but that's what we've landed on them. And and so they're kind of, they are struggling and understandably struggling as their cabinet colleagues for for their own personal and party political reasons are turning their head away uh, and and not really doing much as far as I can see. So the all of government approach that you hear coming out, I, I think is, 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 you know, it's not, on, on a, on a spatial level, the idea that Ireland is full is total nonsense. The Netherlands has two and a half times our population. Uh, and if you draw a line from Dublin to Galway, everything south of that is the size of the Netherlands, and they've got seventeen and a half million people. Like the idea that Ireland is full, not alone are we spatially empty, we have say, say that one again geographically. So if you draw a line, you draw a line right from from um, from the M50 to Galway, right to Oranmore and yep. Galway. Everything south of that, yeah, that's the size of the Netherlands, right? Yeah. Except they have seventeen and a half million people living there. Okay, and they don't build high rise. Just for any economists listening, you think we all need to build high rise? Um, what they what they do is they they plan housing much better than we do. Basically, so spatially, like we have loads of room and we have loads of buildings. Um, and not alone do we have loads of buildings, we have loads of capacity, we have loads of land as well. Like we're not short of any of these things. Um, so so you know the idea that these people are and and as Tanya rightly said, they haven't had an impact on the housing sector yet because they've all been housed in commercial in you know commercial properties in, in hotels. So in the short, medium, and long term, there are kind of a few things that that could be done. In the short term, we need to get this all, all the government thing. Like the Department of Defence should be it. They're full of engineers and they know how to build and there's loads of accommodation. Not alone do they know how to project manage it because that's what they do, particularly the engineers in the army. They know how to organise things. This is what they're really good at. This is what they spend years. Right? They can they can set up a camp in two days, you know, to house thousands of people. And yet they're sitting there in the car, you know, throwing bombs on each other, practising and all that kind of stuff. Great stuff and I'll, I'm not having a go with them. But, but I think, uh, you know, they could be Otherwise utilized. I mean, and they came, they came to very great use during COVID, for example, in setting up their, 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 their the vaccination clinics and all that. So the short term, we need to get, you know, temporary to, to five year accommodation up and running. In the medium term, we have advised as the expert advisor group that we need reception, integration agency and centers for all these types of people. In the long term, we need lots of housing, but not alone do we need lots of housing. This is a bit that people forget. We need surge capacity. Like this is how effective our housing policy has been for years not alone do you need housing to house your population and all that but you need that buffer for when things like this happen and because of climate e- the economy and war these things are going to happen more and more uh, they're going to happen again and again and we're going to get surges of population and contractions of population and we need like we don't even take account of this stuff in our what's called the housing needs demand assessment so that's lo- what local authorities have to do to assess the housing they need in the future we don't even take these things into account of that and so we're ignoring the hundred thousand people in the country between between people in DP and, and in direct provision and, and the Ukrainians. We're ignoring 
their needs in terms of housing in in, in the system. That's head on the sand stuff, you know. And just in terms of that, Lorcan, is that does come back to as well the market dominated policy that it is the idea that housing is overwhelmingly to be provided and by the market and that has been the dominant ideology and therefore the idea of planning for it and having surge capacity doesn't come in because we have gutted our state capacity to do that. Well, yeah, absolutely. I mean, we, we've been relying on the market. Actually, I, I came across something very interesting recently. So normally, the likes of yourself and myself would use the early 90s as the time as the tipping point when Ireland kind of ditched the idea that local authorities should build and mm. it's very much kind of relied on market. I, I was looking at stuff the other day from 1958 when in, in terms of in a housing debate where senior civil servants were saying it's time to spend our money better than on housing. We should be investing in industry and let housing look after itself. So this stuff has been going on for 70 years uh, that that we kind of, we, we let the market kind of dictate what we're doing. And like the chickens come home to roost. And the measurement of, of good housing policy isn't the number of expensive built-to-rent apartments that you build every year, or even the number of houses. It's bottom-up, not top-down. It's how we treat those in most in need uh, of housing. And we can see in the last 12 years, even since Coveney was minister, in, in in 2017, that the number of homeless people has gone from 2,000 odd or whatever it was to 13,000 there recently, and numbers buried uh, uh, on, a, on a Friday evening conveniently, but over 13,000. That's a measure of housing failure, not a measure of housing success, Not you know, notwithstanding how many houses we build every year. Yeah, absolutely. And it's interesting to go back to when I was doing my research for the book, I was reading the, um, I can never remember the title of it, The Working Class, the report on the housing conditions of the working class in 19... I think it was 11 or 19, 13, and is fascinating like that, yeah. to read because it is exactly the same debate. You have the private landlords of the time saying we need to let it remain with the market. Yeah. And the, the finding was, of course, if you leave it housing to the market, you will have the tenements, you will have this constant issue. And it's like we, we unlearned all those lessons. Um, Tanya, just to go back to you, in terms of children and um, how have you, you been looking at this within the Children's Rights Alliance and our parents contact you generally, how children from all different communities are feeling and coping right now in terms of yeah. the situation we're in? Look, it, 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 like, to be honest, children from so many different backgrounds are impacted by the, 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 the way the state is dealing with the housing issues. So if I give you an example, we've got children, the Child Law uh, Project reported on this recently. We've children in uh, hospitals who should be discharged into residential care, uh, but can't be because there's nowhere to put them because the HSC hasn't developed any accommodation options. And it's quite detrimental for them being stuck in a hospital bed when, you know, if they, if they need to be, they need to be doing different types of therapies and things like that. We've got children. Explain that know. there. So you're saying that the housing of their family isn't appropriate for or the house, housing they need? Yeah, or the housing of the child. So let's say maybe the child needs residential care. Um, and it's up to the HSE to provide it and they haven't provided it. They haven't developed enough housing options. Mm, um, mm. If you look at, as Larkin's talked there about um, the refugee situation. So there are all these roles are fragmented and guess what? They've all landed in Roger Gorman's <laughs> a desk essentially is what's happened. So if you take um, uh, children in the care system at this moment in time, Tusa is really struggling to find placements. You've got social workers re- struggling 
day in, day out trying to find appropriate accommodation and appropriate placements and having to use inappropriate special emergency arrangements. And again, the question is, why is it a social worker in Tusla that has to find this type of accommodation? And we look at child refugees and what's happening to families. Again, it's it's on the desk of the Department of Children and Roger Gorman. Um, and it might be OK when it's small numbers. Well, when you're dealing with any kind of scale, what you're doing is you're setting up these different entities against each other, trying to find yeah. accommodation. And in other countries, you know, this will be planned out. You know, a Department of Housing will plan it out, a local municipality or council would plan it out. And that's not happening in, in the Irish context. And I think that's something we have to get to, to grips with, is actually plan the accommodation for all the different people in the community who need it. Um, and not, and, and leave social workers to do their job, which is, you know, care, assessment of a child, you know, making them safe, uh, finding, helping them to link in with, with, with education. Um, the impact on all these different groups, you know, is, it's hugely adverse because one experience of being homeless for a child, I mean, the studies show at least it can leave a lasting impact on the child. Mm, yeah. Um, some children are more resilient than others, but, you know, they've done studies looking at, let's say, um, anxiety levels and emotional disturbance. And they found like 10 years on those children who experienced the stabilization experience of being homeless had much higher anxiety levels than as a teenager, um, down the road. So, like it, it, it is one of the most core fundamental things we need to do for children if we want to protect them and, and safeguard them from, from these experiences. And I think we're also expecting children in homeless accommodation and, and, and refugee accommodation. I remember it, it varies hugely because not all the accommodation is bad. The state has put together some very good refugee accommodation where it's compliant with standards. Families have a place to cook. There's enough space. They're not overcrowded. There's play facilities nearby or the schools nearby. That's not the case for all children. And we know that parents are talking about very stressful parenting environments where, you know, the, ch the children are having to share a common room with adults from around the world. We've even heard situations where parents might be sharing rooms, <laughs> right? Rooms and, and, and houses with yeah. fa other families. And, and that's really hard trying to parent in that environment. And I worry about that from a welfare or child protection point of view, because, um, if you've got parents, they're very stressed. It impacts on how they parent, but they can't keep an eye on their children the whole time. Nor is it the right thing either, because as children get a bit older, they need to have a bit of space, they need to be a bit more independent. And these kind of environments, they just aren't, 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 they don't create good environments for families at all. Yeah. Lorcan, you wanted to come in there. Uh, yeah, no, just it, it's a kind of an ironic point there about, you know, the, the HSE not being able to discharge children. At the same time, Bagot Street Hospital has been sitting empty for years yeah. and that has a capacity of around 500 people we could put yeah. in there uh, and I don't know who owns it is the HSA or the OPW but it shouldn't be sitting empty and and we know how much it, it will cost to, to redo it. and you know when, when all this is over and if it if it ever ends you'd still have a building capable of housing people and the other point that Tanya made which was interesting about competition housing policy has been arranged in such a way that you have multiple state entities competing with each other to buy the same buildings and the same pieces of land jacking up the price, which is all ultimately all under underwritten by the state anyway. So you've housing, approved housing bodies competing with the housing agency, competing with local authorities to buy the same thing. Now, there is a system in place where they're not supposed to do it, but it does happen. The reality is when you go competing or buying a piece of land that you, you can get multiple state agencies competing for the same thing, uh, driving up price and that of uh, driving up the prices. And what that says really is that there's a total lack of coherence 
amongst a lot of the, the, the policies within one department. But when you start looking at health, children, housing, uh, transport, environment, a lot of the policies that are in place, particularly around like our area of housing, Rory, are, are they just not compatible with another department. So right mm-hmm. now, the policy to drive apartment building in Dublin is forcing people to live down in Longford and Westmead, which means they're buying a secondhand 3 Series BMW diesel and driving into work, mostly the women doing the heavy lifting with carry duties uh, and throwing emissions into the air all over again. Where's Eamon Ryan when this is happening? Nothing is asleep in the door or wherever he is. Uh, asleep at the wheel, for sure, because all these, and that has health implications and education implications and gender implications and a whole lot. But so there's nothing coherent about about uh, government ministers, as far as I can see, seem to operate in their own silo, to their own agenda, to their own ends. Uh, and this is what you get. Like, you, you get them all looking out for each other and not looking across the cabinet table and saying, hey, Minister Gorm, how can I help you? Instead of that, when they put out a call for accommodation to house, you know, emergency housing for Ukrainian people, they all put their head in the sand and pretend they have no accommodation. We have thousands of acres, the state owns tens of thousands of acres uh, of land on which, you know, which things could be built and also thousands of properties. Um, I think the biggest property owner of vacant property, because I've seen the data, which nobody else has, is the HSE itself. It has thousands of empty properties uh, across the country. And, and that is really, you know, quite just that the government would say, you know, we, we we're all, can only hand out tents now and sleeping bags when we have thousands, as you say, empty properties. You know, my state reaction, properties, my, sorry, it's, they're state property, they're not even private ones. And, yeah, and, and yeah, state-owned ha- properties. And it, hand- it, 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 to me, to be honest, what I thought was, this is them. You know, it is, it is them pandering to saying, okay, well, we're actually going to say Ireland is full as well. Because we're not, that it's, it's trying to send this message out internationally or saying that we're sending a message out that we don't have capacity because it's trying to say Ireland is a soft touch. So it's government well, actually I think the feeding... Tent- the, the, the racism lift, and that. The tense and the seventy-five euro a week is normalising homelessness, which I think is is wrong. I mean, homelessness is is it, like when you're at that level, things are really bad. You know, there, there there really is no need for anybody to be sleeping in a tent uh, yeah. in a first world country like Ireland. There is absolutely no need. Yeah, yeah, completely. I mean, like back, as you said, Lorcan, Bagger Street Hospital is empty. I mean, I, some, that was said to me today. You know, what yeah. what has happened to that as in a facility? Why hasn't that been converted? That would be ideal type of accommodation. I completely concur with that. Uh, there's plenty of places where people could be sleeping. We don't need to put them in in sleeping bags. I think one of the problems for um for the Department of Children and the Minister is they haven't been given enough money to develop new accommodation options. I think that's one thing. There is an issue maybe with expertise and how you convert this stuff and move it, you know, moving it much quicker. Um, it's, you know, if you're expecting the government department to do this, normally this would be a national public agency that would normally lead this type of work. Um, and I, I think the other piece is, you know, what I see as well, I'm on a different grouping to, to Lork and the programme board on, on ending direct and uh, ending direct provision, and what one of the things coming up is, um, the, you know, the Department of Children has been given land to develop, uh, and that's a good thing because you want to see what you want is, you know, the different government departments at, at least creating more housing stock for people, but the land is way too far away from services, so it's costing more for the state to develop it, you know, to bring water in, to bring electricity in. Yeah. Um, so there's big questions about how we're doing this, to be honest, you know, and I think it goes back to where's the role of the de- Department of Housing and actually having a broader view of how we develop housing stock and care 
communities um because i do worry that you know uh, when we, we when we're trying to address housing issues uh, for families and absolutely we have to do that i do worry about this siloed focus just on housing and not on the other things that absolutely. communities need so you know in children's rights lines, we, we campaign for, for play and recreation facilities. And we do that because all the consultations with children tell us that's what they want, right? Particularly young children. It's usually number one on their list. Um, of things they want. But then the data also tells us when we look at children who live in poverty. Um, and if you live through poverty, if you live particularly in your young years, you know, be before the age of six, if you're living persistently through poverty, you actually develop a very poor self-concept. You're more likely to develop a very poor view of yourself and what's possible. Um, and they've done studies showing that when children have access to green spaces and play facilities, actually that you can change that. They feel much better about themselves. It, it takes them out of themselves, improves their emotional well-being. So a big part of this is not just about housing. It's also about the other things that, you know, allow communities to thrive and, and prosper as well. No, you see, it's a great point because one of the issues in housing, and that's the silo mentality again, is that we don't look even even developing like if you forget about the refugee situation for a second even just to, in our developing of our private housing that we do we don't we're happy to develop housing states that are, are, are say two kilometers away from the nearest urban center and no footpaths uh, no street lighting uh, we're happy to develop apartments sitting above a dual carriage where you inhale particulates diesel and tire particulates all day long we're happy to do like we ignore all the necessary you know the stuff that goes around housing so everything if you think about it if you look outside your window like everything on the street from the footpath to the streetlight to the sewer to the bus stop is all public infrastructure except the house and um, one of the issues that we have and it's why we don't think of it in a holistic way is because we don't treat housing as infrastructure we treat it as a, as a, a market good and if we treat it like infrastructure no motorway will, will get planned in in the in the isolated way that housing gets planned uh, you know, no hospital will get planned in the isolated way, planned for in the isolated way that housing gets planned for. So when you're planning, like, you know, whether it's for refugees or whether it's private housing, whatever it is, we tend to do it in, in kind of like a standalone isolated development and look and then clap ourselves in the back and say how great we are forgetting the schools as Tanya said forgetting the, the health issues and the mental health issues as well as the physical health issues uh, that go along with that. In terms of, I suppose, just moving forward with this and how we try and both challenge the the rise in influence of the far right but actually you know solve the you know issues of homelessness which we have been talking about for many years um, and the wider housing crisis it seems to me very necessary that we continue to highlight that the, the that we can and should be you know and can be providing and should be providing enough homes for everyone. And that there, you know, what we've talked about here and what I've talked about so much and Lorcan and, and Tanya, we've talked about so many times is like a starting point, the issue of homelessness and why there is one child homeless in this country is, is an utter disgrace and it, it feeds into it. And that we have allowed the situation where we've almost 4,000 children homeless with uh, their families is just, you know, it is utterly, um, I think a reflection of a complete failure to, as I said, treat housing as a public good, a human right, and that that's the change that's needed. When we have like billions in a surplus, um, as I was kind of trying to think, you know, how we how we you know talk about this and how we, it's like we need to build homes, not hate. It's we need to show that we have the capacity to do this and that migrants and refugees are not the cause of the housing crisis but government policy that has refused to take you know 
these things serious. Take housing that we've talked about here, planning, you know, homelessness. And the idea somehow that the far right and the independent TDs offer some solution, um, I think we really need to challenge. But I think we do need to challenge the government as well and, and challenge the structures of the state and say, it's not good enough what you're doing. It's not. And, you know, we can't just accept this, that, the, you know, the idea that they're just not putting in enough effort, we can't accept that, I think. Well, I think you need to challenge the the, the kind of the narrative that every minister around the cabinet table has put their shoulder to the wheel with this. And, you know, and, and you have to acknowledge, you know, as Tanya starts out saying we've done a lot of work. Yeah, we have. But we still are nowhere near solving this and we're nowhere near resolving it. And we have an awful long way to, to go because remember, come Easter, a lot of those hoteliers or the people who own hotels and that commercial, you know, the sector, the, the, the refugees are carrying them over kind of to dip in the season over the winter, the autumn and winter, but come springtime and when the wealthy Americans and Germans, if they come back after getting attacked in Dublin and all that kind of stuff, if you know, when they come back, the hoteliers will be looking for their accommodation back and then we're back into, you know, we're back into crisis mode again. Worst Tanya. crisis mode. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, 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 I completely agree with you, Rory. I, I do think this is about lack of leadership, lack of planning, lack of investment. It's a problem that is years, you know, it was, it was created years ago and we're still feeling the effects of it. And, you know, there's lots of people trying to do good work, but it's not at the scale and capacity that it needs to be is the truth of it. I mean, even like, how are we in a situation where Roger Gorman cannot get the money that he needs to build accommodation for refugees arriving in the country and to build state-built accommodation? How is that possible um, when we people on the streets? It's pretty clear that they're struggling and that they need the resources. They have the ideas to do it. There's questions, you know, around whether they're they're big enough or whether they're extensive enough. But I, I do think that it has been left to Roger Gorman. It's been complicated probably by having three different political parties in power. And it does concern me, to be honest, that it's one government department that has everyone else, basically, you know, Department of Housing, dealing with housing, Department of Children has all the other issues, all the other housing uh, challenges and issues has landed on their door. Um, and and I, I think there's big questions to be asked about about how, how we move forward. I mean, I have to say, you know, this week, a lot of the organisations working directly with refugees, I mean, they're, they're, they're really demoralised by seeing people on the streets because they know it's possible to convert the accommodation and they know there's other solutions and other possibilities. And everyone is really worried. I mean, yeah, yeah, they're, yeah they're, you know, like, like even from my own perspective, just thinking of very young men on the streets, you know, there's not a big difference sometimes between a 16 year old, a 17 year old and an 18 year old. And there's this assumption, I think, when you're 18 and 19, you're going to be fine. Um, but that that's not the case. And, you know, when you, people living on the streets right now, uh, intense, you know, the men are actually usually more vulnerable and young men are more vulnerable to physical attacks, to be honest, and physical violence. And if there's been an upsurge in hate and people feel it's okay to racialize and attack people, what's going to happen for those people? They're also thinking about the criminal gangs. I mean, they were mixed into the middle of the Dublin riots. They were all there. They were, they were, they were making hay, um, in terms of what, what happened there last week. And, um, th those gangs and organizations, they are very worrying because they will exploit these, these men stuck on the streets. They'll also exploit them sexually as well. And they, they'd be the kind of things I'd be very worried about. I, I just don't think it's acceptable and, and good enough. I know the Irish Human Rights and Equality Commission has come out in relation to this because they're saying the same thing. I mean, the law is pretty clear. You're meant to provide shelter to people. 
legal, legally yeah. you are. That's that's what the law says. Um, and I just we're just not in that place where the government is not in a position to provide accommodation. Yeah. But then you have. But then I Tanya, just want to come in. Sorry, Lorca, just no, to make one point in that. You're, you, yeah. you, you come in then, Tanya. I think you're absolutely right in terms of framing that and and stating that that what it it is absolutely unacceptable that someone is being left on the streets. Anyone is being left on the streets when we have such resources. But Lorcan, and just before you come in, and maybe you come in as well, we also have a vacancy rate now in offices that is above 15%. There are thousands of offices that could be perfectly used. And to me, it's like it comes back to the, the dysfunction at the heart of neoliberalism, of our system, of our economy, that we say, oh, we can let all these perfectly new built offices sit there vacant while other people have to sleep on the street and probably will be victims of the rise of the far right and beaten up and go through all that that you've just said. Like, it's an indictment of our, not just government, but the nature of our economy and the way we organise it, I think, as well. Lorcan, you want to come in? Yeah, yeah no, just, uh, just what, what Tony was saying there about the gangs and the bit of the Dublin rights. I mean, the housing has been just been used as a... As a, you know, it could be anything. You know, uh, housing has been used as, as a lever by these people just to stir up trouble without a doubt. Um, now, I'd say, you know, they wouldn't be, it, it wouldn't be as easy to use a poor health system uh, as an agitator or a poor transport system as an agitator, but housing is something that, you know, affects everybody. So you'd wonder then when you see these, is it was it the Rural TDs Alliance or whoever was out in the, in the doll there, um, you know, saying Ireland is full. I mean, who's playing into whose hands here? Are they playing into the gang's hands and the, these far right hands or are the far right playing into their hands? It, it, it's really difficult to know, but it's really disappointing to think that you would have su- supposedly intelligent people that we pay a lot of money to to represent us coming out with this kind of nonsense. Uh, do you know what I mean? It, it's, it's really sad. And obviously they don't see the bigger picture. Uh, of what's going on uh, around the country or, you know, at, at the very back to the very start when Tanya said, like, the role that Ukraine plays in, in, in as a buffer in Europe, you know, they, they're they obviously not seeing the bigger picture in, in locally in terms of housing or nationally or internationally uh, about the positive sides of this. To, to hear them recite tropes about Ireland is full, uh, it's really disappointing. The, the vacant building stuff is uh, office buildings, right? A, a lot of them are complicated to convert, right? First time, right? But but I am saying even in, in, on a temporary shelter basis. That's our- yeah, uh, okay, yeah, and they go through cycles, and they're fairly predictable cycles. So you can see when they're going to come in and going to come out. The the, the 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 issue would be, I suppose, and it's not insurmountable, but the issue would be getting access to three or four floors of an office building and getting it safely converted. It can be done, and this is where I think the OPW and, and the likes of the army engineers and all that kind of stuff are, have have a big role to play. I'm, I'm not sure how a long uh, term solution will be, but it would take like the, the important thing is not to have people on the streets and not to have you know men and children sharing the same accommodation and all that kind of stuff so yeah and i mean we could use all that all that but then you wonder like where is the as my friend calls the civil service the angels of inertia like where is the initiative where is the the mojo amongst policymakers and amongst civil service to go out there why are they still passing by baggage street hospital every day looking up and going isn't it a pity someone someone you know doesn't use that and then they go into the government department and say well you know actually we're planning for homelessness over christmas the two things do not compute but yeah this is what we're getting you know what i mean so there seems to be a, a it's back to that kind of lack of joined up thinking you know yeah, yeah. And it goes back, if you think about it also, I remember the Kenny report in 1973, you know, that lack of courage in which was, so the Kenny report said the state should be able to acquire uh, land for, you know, 
basically nominal value plus 25%. And it was never enacted for fear of what property owners might react politically uh, to that. But, you know, those kind of powers, and, and, and the minister has these powers uh, at his disposal, uh, these kind of powers to compulsorily acquire property and do all that kind of stuff in the national, they, they are there, but they haven't been, I suspect, probably the reason the army haven't been deployed as well, the, the message they would send is one of panic. Uh, they haven't been deployed. But the minister has an emergency, power, emergency powers act there that can be evoked at any time. Yeah, and we've talked about that for a number of years. Like, it's 2015, I remember, with Peter McVeary organising, and you were there, Lorcan, we had you speaking as well, 2015. The empty homes conference, wasn't it? Yeah, in Liberty Hall, where we called on the government to declare it an emergency, um, and that's eight years ago, and they haven't they haven't done it. And I think it's more than just, it, it is what you said there, it's more than just uh, lack of joined up thinking. It is interests who dominate. And it is the, and that's the thing, that there is a battle between treating housing as a commodity and investment asset, the land, the buildings, their exchange value, the commodity use value versus, or sorry, the commodity value versus the use value, like what it, what in terms of it could be used for society. And that is a fundamental problem. Um, but also it is, goes back to, you know, when you talked about, you know, having the capacity for surge, we gutted our state of the public capacity to deliver homes. And that includes maintenance. It includes, you know, retrofitting. It includes, you know, refurbishing all those basic capacity and skills. We gutted our state of it. So it's like when then when it turned around, it goes, oh, we can't do anything. Well, that's because you basically decimated the ability to do anything. And that was part of, you know, austerity and neoliberal policy. So we have to build it back up again. Um, but I think there is something in what you're saying as well, Tanya, about the idea of an agency as well, an agency to take responsibility and this, you know, different responsibility across different government we, we, departments. Yeah, Lorca. We, we have proposed, uh, Tanya, the expert advisory group, you know, proposed this reception integration agency to reception. Now, there's, there's a general reluctance among government departments to set up yet another agency. Yeah. Uh, they're very reluctant to kind of set up bodies like this. But but I think in this instance, and it would be a long term, it wouldn't be something that would just be set up for a few years and then kind of stood down. The idea of a reception integration agency to develop um, reception facilities that we're legally obliged to provide for people seeking international protection and for benefits of temporary protection, like people fleeing Ukraine and war and that. You know, we, we, the, the reception integration agencies, the idea is that we can provide our legal mandate in terms of accommodation, but also that we, set up a system to integrate people into the community. And and we forget, like, as Tanya pointed out, they've kept, you know, Ukrainian kids have kept rural schools alive, and they will, because I think a lot of those Ukrainian people aren't going to go home. Uh, yeah. They're going to be permanent feature of a lifestyle. And, you know, as far as I'm concerned, they're very welcome. But we yeah. need to look at all the, all the, the puzzles that they bring. And you just in, in terms, I think the, the other aspect of this is um, the... You know, developing that public capacity, I do think we need a public construction company. You know, if we'd set up that two years ago, we would be in the ability to be, you know, refurbishing these buildings, setting up emergency accommodation, um, building homes and developing modular, own modular factories as well. There's public capacity we need to develop. Tanya, last word to you um, in terms of, you know, people who are listening to this and, you know, they will all be concerned about what's happening, trying to find some hope this time, trying to think about what they can do, what they should be saying, talking about to friends, neighbours, politicians. What would you say is charting a way forward now? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I think you have to make sure that, you know, the, you don't allow activists and people out there really so hating division among our communities. I think that's really important because, 
you know, with, with social media, they're able to fill the void, they're able to pull out stories that, um, uh, and, and, and set, and, and sell, and sell tropes. And, and the truth is there's a really positive, successful story, uh, of chill, of, of families, refugees migrating to Ireland and settling in Irish communities. I mean, here's the thing I always think we, we forget, um, and we haven't talked about it. I mean, we had 160,000 Polish people arrive in Ireland over a short period of time. Um, and they helped keep the boom going. And in fact, they're in all our communities and most of our children will have a Polish friend. There'll be a Polish teacher in the school. They'll be working in a business. They'll be working in, a, in, in, a, in one of our workplaces. And it was a hugely successful migration uh, of people. And, and, and this is what's going to happen with Ukrainians arriving here, to be honest. That's going to happen. That happens, you know, successfully with all the other groups of refugees. This is actually, there's lots of history of success in, in, in terms of Ireland. The bit where we, we failed is is actually where the how the government has responded to these issues and problems, um, and that's the bit I think we need to be focusing on. We need to be focusing on how the government is responding, and you know it has it's it's been lackluster. They've left one minister on their own. They've left one department on their own to respond to this, and we need a whole system wide approach to how we deal with housing and how we deal with accommodation. And I'm absolutely sure that with good, the right leadership, it goes down to leadership goes down to courage and it goes down to hope. They're the things we need to focus on to get ourselves out out of this hole because I, I absolutely think it's possible. Yeah, great. Listen, Lorcan, thank you so much. And Tanya as well, thank you so much for taking the time Thanks, today to, to chat to me on Reboot. Um, I know our listeners will go, have got a huge amount out of that and really, um, you know, it does give... I think, you know, some direction for people in terms of what they can advocate for um, and just, you know, thinking that through because I know a lot of people, including myself, are struggling to try and, you know, make sense of what's happening and how can we find a way to go forward and continue to campaign with hope and advocate for hope. So, listen, thank you so much. Um, and thank you so much to our listeners, as always, for supporting us um, on Patreon and for sharing the podcast around for your feedback. We really appreciate it. Um, and listen, if you can, please consider becoming a patron. Go over to patreon.com forward slash tortoiseshack. We are independent media produced by Tony Groves, Tortoiseshack Media. Um, please, if you can, sign up for what you can each month. I know times are tough, but these podcasts are really so important more than ever in this time to counter the hate and provide hope in ways forward. So listen, thank you so much for listening. As I said, if you can, share it around and let's keep going. Thank you so much. <laughs>